Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of Her Story. This is Cassidy, and today I'm talking with Joanna Ross Hersey. Joanna is an international tuba and euphonium soloist. She also is on the faculty at the University of North Carolina, and she is the current president of the International Women's Brass Conference. I am so excited for you to listen to this episode. Joanna and I touch on various topics and her career, and she's just a fascinating human to hear from. So I hope you enjoy. Please make sure you like and share this episode with your friends. Make sure you're following our Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. And make sure that you are also checking out our website. Thanks so much. Cassidy, thank you so much for having me this morning. I'm Joanna Hersey, and I'm a professor and a tubist, and I consider myself a bit of an activist, too, for women's issues now at this point in my life. And my beginnings were quite humble. I grew up in Vermont in a little tiny town with 280 people in it, and I went to a one-room schoolhouse through the eighth grade, which was where the tuba and I came into contact for the first time. So when I live, I live now in North Carolina, and I'm talking to you from home, and I teach at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. So I have a full-time job as a professor of tuba and euphonium, where I also teach music appreciation and some music history. So that's me in a nutshell. Wonderful. That's so weird. One room schoolhouse. What? I know. And it's not, you know, of course, we're all young at heart, but I'm not that old even. But in these small towns, especially in Vermont, because of the mountains, a town might only be 10 or 15 miles from the next town, but it's a hard 10 or 15 miles to get up and down those mountains. And many of them are dirt roads. Some of the dirt roads in these areas close in the winter. They don't try to keep them plowed. So what they do is they have a, a system of small schoolhouses dotted throughout these little towns that might in a normal case all pool together. And so when I was young, we had, let's see, we had K through five in one building with two teachers. And then we had six, seven, eight in a room with one teacher. And he is one of my best role models, Chip Devinger. He's, he's still hale and hearty and he's on Facebook and every now and then he'll see what I do, which I so shout out to Mr. Devinger. He had the whole sixth, seventh and eighth grade in such an amazing way. So like you kind of see in the movies, he would just group the students together who were at the same level to work on things. And it, it wasn't so formally divided. We were maybe only 18 of us all together in all three grades. And, and so he would read out loud and we would make art together and go out back and play softball. And it was a very fabulous, inspiring upbringing, but also very gender neutral because everybody played together, boys and girls. There wasn't enough of us to start dividing up. And my eighth grade class was 10 and it was the biggest the school had ever had. So I come from this place where it's a farming community, rural Northern Vermont. It's an economic area that struggles somewhat. And so I grew up in that sense of, you know, seeing good role models for hard work and classical music was very far from everybody's mindset. And it's interesting to think that that all of them that that I that I grew up with that saw me do this tuba thing. It's it's kind of funny that I'm still doing it all these years later. That's so crazy. And so 
did you have a band program? Like, how did that work? How did you get into tuba while you were there? Well, it's a cool story, I think, because it really does show how much of a difference music education can make. So my family, my grandfather was a trumpet player, actually, and he was a poor young man, and he made his living playing jazz trumpet in St. Louis, and he put himself through school. World War II came along, and he joined the army. So so there was some musicianship in my family. It wasn't fully active. My grandfather became a dentist. The army trained him in World War II as a dentist. And so that was his career and trumpet was for fun. So it was there, but not front and center stage. So when my mom moved my sister and I to Vermont and we grew up there away from most of my family, there weren't band systems in these little tiny schools. So in the middle school, that classroom, Mr. Devinger played the piano and we sang. So we had choir and he was amazing at that. And, and that was our music making and there wasn't anything wrong with it at all. But of course, it's contingent upon the teacher having musical training, which isn't necessarily going to continue everywhere. So what the state of Vermont was doing at the time, this is the late 80s, is they were passing laws trying to regulate, making sure that all these small little country schools had all the same things. And one of those was a band program. So this man was hired, Mr. Hewling, was hired to take on something like a dozen of these small country schools and found band programs in them all and so this poor man so he came on one night Wednesday afternoons for maybe two hours or something it was it was a good effort but it, it's hard to do and so what happened was we had no band and then one day they they came and presented to us that we were going to start a band and we all had to choose an instrument and they sent around the sheet that the instruments were available for rental you know and and, and maybe that was St. Jay so an hour away there was a music store and I came home and I said to my mom that I wanted to play the violin. And I don't know why I wanted to play the violin, but this was dear to my heart. I think it looked elegant, which is not what happened. <laughs> and so, so there I am and my mom, smart, my mom's a you know, very smart lady. She says, you know, you're in the eighth grade. So this was my eighth grade year already. And the high school that I was going to next, the regional high school, a couple towns over, did not have an orchestra. It wasn't very, there weren't very many orchestras in high school in Vermont at this time. They only had a band. And she said, you know, if you start violin this year, you're not going to be able to play it again. But if you take a band instrument, you can continue going through. So being a typical eighth grader, I did not want to do anything because if I couldn't have my violin, then it was going to be nothing. And so I went back and I said to this poor Mr. Hewling, I'm not going to play anything. And they had decided that all 18 of us needed to take an instrument because otherwise there wasn't really any way you could do a band. It had to be all, right? So he said to me, well... We have a sousaphone in the next town over that they're not using, and you could play that, and it would not cost anything. And at this point comes the interesting part, because I did not know what a sousaphone was. And I thought it was like a flutophone, which is what we used to call recorders back in the day. Sometimes you yeah. call them, right, flutophones, the little plastic recorders that you got in school. So I said yes to the little plastic flutophone. And not realizing, right? So I do think this story, it really shows that some things are meant to be. I think, I do feel that I was meant to have this happen and that these people, these wonderful educators in my circle, doing what they could to kind of solve this problem of this cranky girl who didn't, you know, this, this all was meant to be. And so Mr. Hewling drove out to this tiny little town with this white fiberglass sousaphone that he had gotten specially from the closet of the middle school in the next town over and he brought it to me and he called me out in the hallway 
to show it to me, to give me like a quick one-two so that I could, could be ready to go for rehearsal. And it's a story I always tell because it's so funny that you have to picture this as a Vermont cloakroom, right? The coat room in, in a Vermont school is big because you have to have boots and hats and mittens and, and the coats are all puffy and they're hanging there. And, and it's a good old linoleum floor that, you know, somebody scrubs endlessly And this Vermont cloakroom. And he put this tuba together and I was horrified because it was supposed to be a flute and this this did just did not so imagine i'm there in eighth grade i'm trying to be all fashionable you know and and this is just not working out and the man was so wonderful he was a trombonist so i think he was invested in this very much yeah and, probably yeah he put this sousaphone on me and i'm just and, and we're alone out there and it's cold and and he put the sousaphone on me and he said go ahead and blow into it and so you know, I, I did one of those little, little like, like nothing blows. And of course, no sound came. And he said, you're going to have to blow a lot harder than that if you want to play the tuba. And so I took an enormous breath and I blasted this gorgeous note. You know, tuba is wonderful. Anybody can play it first note. And all the kids in the class, it became totally silent. And there was dead silence from in the classroom. And then they all burst out laughing. And that was my first performance on the tuba. But it stuck with me. So it was good. That's awesome. And it's so funny because we came from completely different school backgrounds. Like I came from a super large public school in New York. Like my graduating class was like 500 kids. Wow. <laughs> like 120 kids in my sixth grade band. <laughs> I think that's just so funny because you came from like 18 and that right. was like three grades. <laughs> and it really does show, doesn't it? The diversity that we have in systems across our nation. And that is one of the reasons why when we teach music ed, we need to cover all contingencies because there really is this possibility that our teachers will go far and wide and, it, and that we could end up in the same place, right? You and then yeah. me end up on the same stage in the same orchestra from those such diverse backgrounds. It really is fascinating. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of equity issues that we talk about often focus on urban education, and we kind of don't think about how rural education can also have the same sort of equity issues, especially if socioeconomically those students aren't very well off. And if they're playing in these super tiny ensembles, then getting them instruments and those things and having that access can also be the same exact problems that you see in urban education. That's right. And the fact that everything's gendered, right? I, I know we'll talk about this more, yeah. but the, the idea that instruments have a gender and that through, through unintentional bias sometimes, uh, people shift kids towards the instruments that they feel fit. And because the small towns can't do that, like they only had 18 and they needed to. And so uh, because there wasn't a way to be sexist or prejudice against gender, in my middle school, we ended up with a very egalitarian approach to instrument selection that, that sometimes doesn't take place, if we're being honest. We, we do really think that these instruments are better in certain genders. And so my story really shows that when push comes to shove in a tiny little band, even in the 80s, right, back in the day, that you really can't get rid of those stereotypes. I did notice early on, so I did go on into high school. The band director was amazing. He called my mom at home. He, he had heard that a girl had started tuba in one of the towns over. His tuba was graduating and there were no other tuba players in the entire district. And he called my mom and said, let's make sure she gets registered for a band. And so it was a fait accompli. I had nothing to do with it. That's <laughs> and, awesome, though. Yeah, but, but I did. I, I had a wonderful band director and a wonderful high school band experience, a high school band of, of maybe 25 or 30 at, at the biggest 
And I did notice, though, when I started doing things like Allstate and going out to um, Plymouth State College in New Hampshire was nearby and they had a brass festival up there. And and I remember going and that was when I realized it was unusual that the Uh, stairs, nobody was rude or anything, but but I did realize that it wasn't kind of the normal thing. And mm -hmm. I did like that that attention a little bit. Luckily for me, I didn't get anything that, that was really negative and hurtful at that point or I might not have lasted. But I did see that it was unusual, even though in my experience, it had been perfectly normal. Yeah, I kind of sort of on the same sort of playing field with me and growing up. But yeah, I definitely didn't really receive any really negative bias until I did kind of the same things that you did, Allstate and those sorts of things, or branching out and doing different music festivals and stuff when I was in high school. And, you know, I would place first chair or whatever, and all the boys would be like, you just got your butt beat by a girl. And I'd be like, hell yeah, you did. (laughs) And things like that. But I always had a few females in my trumpet sections growing up in school. So I didn't really, I mean, I, I knew it was a boy instrument. But I didn't really see that as a this is going to hold me back type of thing because there were others in my section. But I feel like with trumpet playing, there are more females around than tuba. Like I feel like they're even more male dominated. So yeah, like trumpet's male dominated. And if you look at different genres, especially like jazz and things like that, it's even more male dominated. But if we're looking at tuba... Yeah. Very few and far between female tuba players. Interesting point for us to pause and say that what what we've just discovered is for those of us that run summer festivals or these honor bands or these these things, I think in our individual school systems, if they're accepting, we feel comfortable. Our students feel comfortable. This this shows that both you and I had people that set up a safe atmosphere for us. We did not feel uneasy in our own school. But those of us that run these summer festivals or these large group events, which might, it it involves maybe boards of directors if it's a nonprofit, these larger things, it's easier to be non-equal. You're worrying about budget. Maybe you tried to ask people of color and minority and women, but then they didn't say yes. So then you're back to the all white panel and and you, you might think you tried. But so let's just pause and say that all of us that are involved with these summer festivals and and you know, extracurricular events outside of the school programs. Here we have two women talking that it it was really there that they encountered this bias. And so that's something that we can take away from our conversation already. I think that we are going to be that first place. When people ask me why there's not more women in brass playing at the top levels, when there seems to be a decent amount in, in the earlier school, I usually say that I think they got there and they just didn't want to put up with it. They are these these are smart women. If if they're a woman in a in a sort of one instrument that might be, you know, perceived as gendered against them, and they stuck with it anyway, and, and did well, and made all state in high school, and then they got to a place where they they got all this negative energy. A lot of these women, young women, are just going to say, you know what, I'm good at twelve other things, and I'm going to go do one of those instead. Yeah. And the, I think that that is what we really need to tackle. It's not. I mean, we do need help in middle school, non-gendering the instruments, of course, but I do feel that we do have a good amount of high quality middle and high school players. They're just not making it into the orchestra at the end or the military band or the college professor position. You know, full professors in the nation are are something like 70% male. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, these jobs, it really shouldn't be that way. And, and when we ask why, I think it does come down to this disconnect between 
feeling we're raising, I think we're raising strong girls. We're, we're raising them to feel like they're powerful and they can do anything, but then they get into these situations that feel awful. And then they just think, you know what? I'm better than this. And who can blame them? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think other parts of that have to do with the idea of representation. And I talk about this like literally every episode. So I'm just drilling it in everybody's heads at this point. But if we're not seeing women succeed in the field, then whether it's conscious or subconscious, we're not thinking, oh, hey, this is for me. And I think that, you know, comes down to there's like that whole idea of it's basically a cycle because the professional world affects K-12 education and K-12 education affects the professional world. And like, for example, I just finished my first year teaching, going into my second year. Okay, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. And I walked into this program and I walked into my high school band and I have 11 trumpet players and all of them are men. Yeah. And so I personally took that to heart because I'm a female trumpet player. And I was like, oh, hey, wait a minute. What is the problem here? What is happening? And the, one of the biggest issues was these young girls that were in, you know, maybe the elementary or the middle school groups are seeing that all the people in the high school band are men. Right. And they don't want to be there because there aren't people that are like them in the section. So they drop out before then. And so I'm like, well, this is a problem. So I made sure as a teacher that the kids were seeing me with my instrument frequently and that I was playing in front of them frequently, like especially my young girl students. So they said, oh, Miss Reed is like me and she's doing it. Okay. I feel more secure. And I think that that was one of the issues was they were dropping out before they hit high school because there were, you know, 12, 13, I think I'm going to have 15 trumpet players next year and they're all boys. And I'm sitting there like, uh, excuse me. In the past, I've talked about, I have one female tuba student. So all of my trumpet players are boys in the high school band. All of my trombonists are boys. And then she plays with two other tuba players that are both men. So she is the only female in the entire back row. (laughs) Yeah. So I talked to her about that a lot. I'm like, I feel for you, girl. Like I was in the same boat for a lot of my life, but I, you know, I, I tried to provide her with as much support as possible because I know what that feels like to feel super ostracized and be around boys all the time and in the boys club. And, you know, she feels like she has to kind of put herself in a little bit of a bubble more and not let her personality come out and things like that. She's super quiet during rehearsal. She just sits there and is just staring straight forward the whole time because she can't really relate to these kids that she sits next to because frankly men are a lot more immature than women are especially in high school right so you know they're making like fart jokes and stuff over there because they're like 15 year old boys and she's sitting there like yes and I'd want her to enjoy band and so it's hard it's like trying to find that balance of being a teacher and also trying to relate to her at the same time it's hard yeah and let's pause and remember that It's 2020 and you're relating this story to us and you're somebody fully embracing, you know, diversity and inclusion in your life and your work. And it's 2020 and we have this situation. I think that one of the biggest hurdles we have when we have these conversations about race, class and gender is that people feel that we did used to be sexist and racist in the past, but they feel that it's fixed now. And and all this conversation really is sort of, you know, over the top that they, they feel that you know yeah. of course like if i relate a story about you know some sexist incident when i was in college they, they would say yeah well that's true it used to be but now things are fine so 
this is, it, I don't know what we do about that other than just sharing our stories. Like, you know, this happened to me yesterday. This happened to me last week. It's 2020 and this is the case. We just do need to keep saying that we certainly have fixed some things and it is better, but it isn't fixed. And, and that's one of the biggest hurdles to the conversation is the sense that society is, is evolving and that society does not normally get less racist or sexist. You have to push it to make it so. Exactly. And, and so we can't sit back and just think naturally it happens. Yeah. And I presented some of my research on gender equity and I, I had a band focus because, you know, that's my thing. That's my jam. But I presented at a gender equity music conference and it was the first gender equity in music conference at the collegiate level ever. And it was Wonderful. at Eastman this past spring. And I was that's like, it's 2020. This is the first time we're doing this. A, so that's a problem right there. But B, yeah. I presented at it and I was sitting in one of my graduate music ed courses at Eastman. And I talked about what I was doing because one of my professors asked me to talk to the class about, you know, this is what I'm presenting on. This is happening this weekend, blah, blah, blah. I was talking about what I was doing for the conference and what I was presenting with my research. And one of my male colleagues came up to me after class and he said you know like some of the other guys in your class were wondering why you were still complaining about this mm -hmm. yeah and framing and it in the word a way complaining yes. And that's one of the things that we talk about when we talk about sexism is what what is it? You know, we'd like to define it clearly for people. One of the definitions is we have a double standard. This is true in all aspects of life, but music too. So if somebody stands up, let's say that your principal trumpet is a man in an orchestra and the conductor is, is um, acting in a racist way or, or some example in, in the music performance world and the principal male trumpet, you know, deals with that in some way, they would be considered um, a hero. But if a woman were to complain about racism or sexism, it feels like it could possibly not really be true when they're just sensitive. So yeah. this, this double standard for talking about it, and not that we don't have amazing male allies on all sides of race, class, and gender, but, but it's, it's true that when women speak, there's a sense of of you know bitchiness or or that they have an axe to grind because they they don't play as well and they didn't win the auditions and so they're bitter and so they're mm -hmm. and and that's why you know let's be honest for a moment i am uncomfortable sharing the examples in my life of when i encounter sexist behavior because i'm still active in this career field i'm still in my 40s yeah. i if i share real honest talk in it it is out there I come under that whole, you know, women are, you know, just angry and complaining. Women of color have this in spades because there's just this sense that we're not supposed to be speaking. We're not supposed to be part of that conversation. And it really is too bad. So a good for, for our, you know, all of our listeners, but especially our male listeners, just because you're not hearing about it from us, especially those of us still in the field. If I was retired, I could be very free. I would probably write a biography, <laughs> share it all. But we can't work in this field if we're looked at as being, you know, complainers and hard to work with. And so just because we're not sharing the stories doesn't mean that they're not taking place. And so it is sort of tricky to share and talk about it honestly and still be true to that sense that I do have to get hired. Yeah. And we feel like there's repercussions if we yes. come out and tell our story or we out people, quote unquote, yes. and things like that. And I remember when I started this podcast and I was talking to my family about it and I said, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is my mission. I want people to share their stories authentically as it is. And my dad looked at me and he forewarned me. He said, you're just starting your career. Oh, yeah. 
He's like, you don't want to burn any bridges. And you can't blame your dad from that standpoint because he cares about you. And it's true that there are examples of people who've been ostracized for being just a little bit too honest. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Everyone has a right to share their story the way they want. But like we say, I have a son, I have a small son. And and I might say, you know, you can do that, but you do have to be willing to accept the consequences that come from those actions, just like when we raise children, right? And in this way, I might say to a, a young woman, you can do these things and say these things in that way, but be ready for the fact that sad but true there are consequences that come from Mm -hmm. some sometimes from this it's not right but it's true and and i can see that your dad would be worried for you not being able to get ahead and be safe in this career it is a tricky career for women yeah oh yeah for sure so let's talk a little bit about your college experiences so we talked a little bit about what you were like growing up and that sort of thing in your little schoolhouse and everything so what was college like for you as a female tubist? It was very affirming. And, and I think I'm unusual. I do feel that if I had had a bad experience, I probably wouldn't have stuck with it. I, I could have gone in any other direction, like we were saying. So I'm here today, sitting in front of you with the career that I have, because my collegiate years were embracing and affirming and positive 100%. All of the, I was the only girl. So I went to Arizona State. So Dan Parentoni was at Arizona State. And at the time, I'm in Northern Vermont. We researched. I had a teacher, Mark Nelson, the amazing tubist, was in Burlington at the University of Vermont there, close by. So I had some lessons with him and heard him play in recital. So I had good role models there. And my teacher was a retired Navy band trombonist who had moved up. So I had very good training. My mother drove me one hour each way to my lessons every Sunday to this man's house. So I had a trombone teacher. The first tuba teacher I ever had was Dan Parentoni when I was a freshman in college. So interesting. But for this middle of the nowhere girl, I did I did have very good training and, and examples. And so when I got to Arizona State, we had been told that, you know, Harvey Phillips was still teaching at that time at Indiana and, of course, an amazing studio there. And I could have gone to some of the more local schools like Eastman and Ithaca and New England Conservatory and Hart that are in the New England area. Mm-hmm. And we, we kept hearing how good the Arizona State Studio was, was doing and how much Parentoni was having success. So I got a full scholarship. My mom and I flew out there and I auditioned. And I think he was being very generous to, you know, thinking about we could give this young girl a chance. You know, my mom and I were very ill at ease. My mom rented a car and we drove all around and, and it was very nerve wracking for both of us. I think my, my mom's a single mom and she raised us by herself and financially it was very hard. So Parentoni gave me a full ride and I went out there and it was amazing. I was the only girl and we had a large studio and it was very successful. People were going off, getting jobs left, right and sideways and it was very affirming and never at any time did anything happen to me that was negative to put a, you know, a dent in my, you know, goals and he did sit me down rightly I think for his mind at that time and I was performance, my my degree was in performance. He did sit me down and say you know, it, it would be so great if you switched to Ed because it would give you a lot more options. Mm. And I didn't see that as offensive. And I still do think that if you, I, I think it may be a good idea to try to convince all performance majors to switch to music education. I, I do have some reservations about that degree, even though I have them, they're my degrees. 
all through the doctorate level. But I also think that if you're not sure you're in performance and you could easily be swayed away from it, then it isn't the field for you anyway. So what happened to me was I looked at him, I thought he was a very, you know, dear, caring man. And I said, thank you so much. You're very sweet. And I went on my way with my performance degree. (laughs) And and so so for me, I, I don't see that as negative at all. He was very affirming. And then in my sophomore year, the United States Coast Guard Band called his studio. They were having a tuba audition and they didn't have all that many sign up. And so they wanted to make sure they were getting the word out because this was pre-internet, right? This is the um, early 1990s. And so so a crew of us from Arizona State went to the United States Coast Guard Band, and it was November of my sophomore year, so I was 19. And a whole crew of us went. We stayed together, and I thought it was great because it was going to be my first audition, and I could watch one of them win because we were Sun Devils, and we were, you know, of course the Sun Devils were going to take it, you know. And so we all stayed together, and we all went together, and they got cut, and I didn't. And, it, and so that was weird. So I came back in the afternoon, and... I I was <laughs> there and then they had a third round. And so by the end of the day, there wasn't any other tuba players left in the building and, and they called me back again. There was some concern I was so young. And so they, they called me back again. And one of the stories that I always tell is the Coast Guard Band, like most organizations, uses site reading that is of course something they composed. So there isn't any way that you could have it ahead of time. They do mm-hmm. give you wind ensemble pieces that are site reading just to see, like, do you know the rep? Can you play these things? Mm-hmm. If you don't know the rep, can you get through it? But then they have their own creation that's quite hard and difficult. So one of the things that the guys in the studio back at Arizona State had done is they had all clustered around me in the practice room before this audition with our big book of the photocopies, you know, these illicit photocopies copies of wind ensemble excerpts and they had had me they all I remember it to this day sitting on the piano bench at the piano with the book on the piano music stand and with eight or ten guys clustered around behind me like so that's not you know awkward at all they were breathing on right over my shoulder and and they would have me play it down and they turn the page play it down turn the page and they took me through the whole sight reading book and so when I got to the Coast Guard Band audition it was one of the ones that I had already read because they had taken me through the entire sight reading book. And of course I still had to, I still had to do the one that nobody knew. So I still showed I could sight read, but, but that was an example of preparation. They were all in my corner. So I won that job and I gave up my scholarship and I went and I joined the Coast Guard Band. And, and so my college time at Arizona State was only a year and a half, two years, and it was enough, but I do, re- I, I, I don't regret. I, I'm glad that I got that that way, but I do wish I could have had four years in that environment instead. So after the Coast Guard Band, I did do my master's at NEC with Chester Schmitz, who is still there in an amazing group, a much smaller group. That's a smaller place. And then I did a doctorate at Hart. And I had Steve Perry, the tubist in the Hartford Symphony, who's amazing. And so all three of my teachers were supportive and kind and did not make me feel less than. And I don't know how many of us could really say that, male or female, that we had teachers that truly, they gave me that blunt criticism and they were honest. And I can say lots of examples of crying after a lesson because it wasn't, I didn't do it right. Me too, girl. Me too. (laughs) So that's what you have to have. And I get a question a lot of, you know, do you teach male and female students differently? That's a question. People are curious. And I always say that it's not male or female, but there is a division. There are two types of students. There's the type of student that are real go-getters and they're always pushing and and they're running forward and and sometimes you need to hold them back and they need to move slower and and take pacing and they, you know, they're very gung-ho and and they think they're awesome and they can do everything and and those students need a particular type of teaching and and again, they often are male, but but that's a kind of student group. The other side is somebody that that doesn't know their own worth enough and they are less willing to to stand forward and, and they are less confident and they sometimes can be hard on themselves to an extent that's negative and, and all of those things. And sometimes that group 
is a little more female. So what you have is the two groups, right? The two types of, of students that could be. I've had lots of male students that were the holding back sensitive type too, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I, I would hold back the go-getters just a smidge and make sure they could tongue cleanly <laughs> before they <laughs> learn, you know, they, they go off on the John Williams to make a channel. You know. and, the, and then the, the sensitive ones, I would make sure that they saw success. So I would, you know, I would do things in a different way for both of those groups. Sometimes those are gendered groups, but I like thinking of it as just two types of, of people, two types mm -hmm. of brass players. Both can be successful. I, I think that's so true. I think there are, there are kids that need to be knocked down a few pedestals and then there's some kids <laughs> that just need a big kick in the butt all the time. So <laughs> That's right. And it's, it's really quite interesting. So I would say that if I had a student that was very gung-ho on performance, and it was a minority student of some in some manner, I really would take them aside at some point and just share some of my experience so that they understood that it was difficult. Mm -hmm. And I, I do feel nobody did that to me. And I think that another piece of this conversation that might matter to say out loud is that many of us were raised, if we come from good households, and you've already shown that you were, I certainly was, we were raised, especially our girls, to think, that we could do anything in this world because good triumphs and hard work pays off and and the idea of being at the top of your field means that you will be secure these are these are truths of my childhood mm -hmm. maybe, maybe some of the rest of you and actually those aren't fully true it's not true that everyone who excels will be in the positions that they dream to be in even with fully qualified. I have had a lot of disappointments because I really did expect I would be able to get those goals met. And I'm afraid that that's not the case for many of us. Yeah. I don't want to tell the student, I wouldn't tell the student not to do it, but I would say that to them. I would say, you know, there are some doors that unfortunately you will just find closed to you for no reason whatsoever, other than that you're not what they think it should be. Mm. You, don't, you don't look like what they think it should be and for no other reason the door will be closed to you and what I would say is so like recently I had a conversation with somebody who was um, very focused on an orchestral career and they were putting all their eggs in that basket and it's 2020 and I did have a conversation with that person and say you know I wouldn't recommend anybody put their you know, eggs all in the orchestral basket in 2020, especially now that we're having the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't have really before. It's such a small percentage of us that are going to get those few full-time jobs, especially with tuba, because it's often not core, right? You have many fully functioning symphonies where the tubist is not core. So I, I think that I would say to that student, please go play in your, your orchestra, but do something else, find something else that gives you satisfaction and joy that you can do alongside because when a door is closed to you and in, in in you feel like it's all or nothing, it's important that you don't just switch to, you know, in something non-musical. If you thought you were going to be an orchestral player and you take 10 auditions and you don't win, you still need to find joy in the tuba. You need to find something, If be it that you started a brass quintet or you, you know, you founded a, you know, a podcast or a publishing company or you did something, you started making, you know, solo albums, whatever it is, tuba and in your instrument that's your passion and the outlets are many and the old model this hierarchy model where orchestra's at the top and all the rest of us are at the bottom yeah. let's get rid of that let's watch yeah. that the, and and the orchestra world is wonderful but all of those people who have those jobs would say 
they're get, they're going away. They're getting fewer. Let's not put our eggs all in that basket. Let's look around at the music world and the amazing joy that you can find there. And I think that also starts with collegiate education as well, because a lot of music schools push orchestral careers, symphony orchestra, over, over, and over again. And you spend all these years learning the same excerpts over and over and over again. And there's there's value to learning those things. Like, I had to learn those things. And look at me. I'm not a symphony orchestra musician. Absolutely. Right? And I had to learn all those stereotypical excerpts. I had to learn the same things that the performance majors were learning. However, like you said, there's a small percentage that actually ends up getting those jobs. So I think that music schools need to approach performance majors from a more eclectic way of thinking about things. Yes. Like, yes, that is a possibility, but you also need to make sure you have all of these other skills because being a modern day professional musician does not always mean that 100% of the time you are going to be playing in an orchestra. I know many of people that play in orchestras, but also have to have private studios or they have their own chamber group or they're doing a music business route or things like that, or they're composing. And so we need to be pushing more of those skills towards everyone, frankly, and not just push symphony orchestra at every single kid. Cause it's just not, it's not realistic. And you're setting them up almost for failure because they get out there and they're yeah, like, I have this one I set of skills. And I couldn't do it. Right. Especially again, especially with tuba. And another piece of this is this idea of the, the phrase that we all hate, you know, those who can do and those who can't teach this mm-hmm. phrase needs to go away, but it is part of the hierarchy. So when we talk about things like patriarchy and racism and, and the fact that they're systemic, right? Systemic racism, it's built into the systems by all groups who have power. And it's not just an individual person that you could tell to hush up. It's system wide. And so one of the things about this is that the hierarchy, it, it really prevents us from viewing things as they really are. Yeah. And so you you want to make sure that your views are welcoming to all things. And I, I want everybody listening to think of people that they find as mentors. So let's say in the brass world, we're looking at somebody like Demandre Thurman, for example, or Wycliffe Gordon, or, or these, these people who, who are mentors, Susan Slaughter. She had her whole orchestral career as a woman, of course, back in the day in the 1960s. But then she becomes a nonprofit guru and founds the IWBC. So if you look at those people, they are all teaching. And this sense from the hierarchy that teaching is lower, that's false. Everybody you admire is teaching. And the, like I learned from Chester Schmitz, who played in the Boston Symphony for his whole career, and he's an amazing teacher. And the idea that we have this sense that teaching is somehow a fallback mm-hmm. is ridiculous. And I, I know that we I think if we really all thought about it, we would agree, but there still is that sense that it's a failure. And so I want, you know, I'm a college professor. I think that's the best job ever. I love collegiate life. It does have its problems. It does have some system um, inadequacies. There, there are a lot of things we need to fix about it, but I want to be in here fixing it. And I do feel that those of us that are, that are in teaching in the college professor world, you know, people like Demandre, people who are clinicianing and in the military band systems and we're working with so many children, you know, each year, the military band clinicians, people go out and they, they can really be role models. And this is so important. It really is part of what every professional musician should be doing. Yeah, I think everyone should be taking some sort of educational learning how to teach, whether it's a pedagogy class or, you know, teaching in the classroom, because like you said, we are devalued when we literally generate every single facet of music. My students 
if they go to school for music, I am producing composers, conductors, professional music. I'm, I am generating everything. Right. right. So yeah. And we, we do, I hate that quote. Yes. <laughs> no, I, no, I hate to even bring it up, but I have had people, I have had people say that to me. I've had students say yeah. that to me in my studio in college that they've heard it somewhere and they feel that it's a, it's a justification for going for the performance career. I do believe in performance careers. If you are willing to have multiple facets, if you're willing, like we say, to make large moves, one of the, I think major things about a performance career is being willing to move anywhere and being willing to take risk and calculated, you know, well thought out risk that if you're willing to do all those things, I advise people to go for it, but they just do need to understand these skills. Like you're saying, this music business aspect, as long as you have the ability to make an income from multiple sources, these, you know, go for it, take those auditions. I love orchestra. I have a little one here in North Carolina, the Carolina Philharmonic, and I, I go a time or two a month and I, I love that. And Mm -hmm. and that's, that's a joyful experience. I don't have to run it. I run most of the things that I do in my life. I don't have to, I'm not in charge. And so I can just sit back there and, and, you know, play on my phone when it's not my piece. So I love (laughs) that, but, but I, I do want us to think honestly that the music world is a lot more than that. And, and our educators, we're, you know, some of us are throwing our hands up. Oh, how are we going to fix these problems with our, our recent conversations about Black Lives Matter? And again, the systemic racism and sexism that's built into all of our lives. What we can do about that is, is we can get rid of it. These are ideas, right? Racism and sexism, it's sets of beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's not ingrained. People might try to say that these are biological things. They're not. They're just beliefs. And you can change beliefs. If we talk about it and the next generation grows up in a different world, we can get these beliefs out. And one of one of our, you know, one of our problems in, in this performance field is that we devalue some of the work and that tends to be the work that the people at the bottom are doing. Oh, I completely agree. And you're talking about having multiple skills as a performer and as a professional musician. And I know you have been a pretty prolific soloist as a tuba player and euphonium player. And you also, so you have some solo albums as well. But what I love is hearing that you've been featuring music by female composers and you've also written some of your own pieces as well. So can you talk a little bit about what your albums consist of and how those projects came to be as a composer yourself. Yes, one of the things that I think, if you're making a list of like, you know, what can we do? What are some concrete things we can do? The first thing we can do is we can play music by people who have been historically underrepresented, right? We can find yes. these pieces and play them. <laughs> That's number one on my list. So find these pieces and play them is number one. And even on tuba, so my first album was, it's all sort of, I can say like legit tuba and piano. It's, you know, it's things like Clara Schumann and Alma Mahler that, you know, I have a leader set, for example, Fanny Mendelssohn, Clara Schumann and Alma Mahler. And then it's composed for tuba things, Libby Larson and Faye Ellen Silverman. So it's an album of all music for tuba. And the idea was, but from a classical bench, the idea was that you, if you can do this on tuba, you know, this number one thing of finding music and playing it. If you can do this on tuba, you can do this with any instrument. I, I have music by people of color on that album. So that was the goal with that album. And then the second thing is on my list of things you can do (laughs) to combat this. The second thing is you can create art that honors the contributions of all. So creating art yourself, composing it, creating pieces of sculpture or painting any kind of art that honors those who've gone before. And 
So my second album was was an effort at that. I, I wrote some pieces to honor a woman that I think of as a big mentor, Hildegard von Bingen. She's somebody that that really stood up in a time when women were under you know underneath in society. Yeah. And so I wrote I wrote a piece to honor Hildegard von Bingen, and I arranged some of her music with electronics. Tuba and electronics is a is a genre that that many of us are very interested in because tuba players are we're given a small choice when it comes to rep anyway. And a lot of the music for tuba and electronics is very explosive and loud and I think coming off of what the tuba is seen as and so often it's somewhat aggressive and and that's not my jam at all so I wanted to create music for tuba and electronics that was the other option of of like Hildegard's music being a little more sensitive and you know almost trance-like and meditative so there's four new compositions for tuba and electronics on that album that have that that idea so those are that's new music and it featured improvisation I, I also believe we should be able to improvise and improvisation is a feature of my compositions and mm-hmm. so my compositions involve improvisation in some way and so that was the second album and now my newest piece I'm going to make a third album that's all to do with Hildegard because now I've got six works that were composed they're either her music that's changed up with electronics or they're composed in honor of her and so I thought I'd put that together all in one album with some new works also I also don't think there's all that much medieval rap that we can choose to play certainly not by a woman so one of the pieces yeah. i'm working on doing now is um a piece by beatrice Dia, who is a medieval composer and that we have a piece from and so i'm doing that as a brass duo so i think that this music the the second thing we can do to to honor is you know to compose and create ourselves and and make it you can make it in honor of hildegard like i've done or or, or something new but not don't be afraid of it composing isn't a hierarchy either right just like we've said about those of those other things composing is everybody and do it. Yeah, it's that system again. Like we talked about, the symphony orchestra conducting has the same sort of hierarchical system right. and composition as well. Yeah, we're going to change the view to a circle where just because we were stuck down in the middle and we're facing one direction doesn't mean that we can't. You know, there's nothing wrong with Bach and and you know the beautiful Brandenburg concertos are one of my favorite pieces ever. But I was placed down in front of Gregson and von Williams and Handel and Bach, and, and I'm just going to turn and I'm going to see Libby Larson and Alma Mahler, and then I'm going to turn a little farther and then I'm going to see the music of of African drumming and I'm going to be inspired by that and I'm going to turn a little farther to maybe something like Indonesian gamelan and mm-hmm. and right. So you turn all the way around the circle. All that music is equally valid. Yeah. And historically, we have just placed more value on Western, white, classical music. And we've seen other forms of music as being barbaric. Right. Or it's in that it's part of systemic like racism. That. Yes, we, yeah. we view it, it was in the interests of the cultures that were taking over these other places that they dehumanize. Right. That's an aspect of colonialism. We dehumanize so that all those people could sleep at night. And one of those dehumanizations was that that music is primitive and not worthy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, completely. As a professional tubist, obviously you've experienced misogyny <laughs> in your profession. Exactly, yes. We can kind of assume that. So yes. can you cite any time in particular where that has had like a particular effect on you as a professional and as a human? I, I can give you countless examples of nights when I've had something hard and gone home and, and just sat and cried for the sake of the world. And I think that the worst ones are when they come from the people that you really care about in the field. I had a, a male colleague in a certain area where I lived at one time, and I'm going to be anonymous because I still have to work with this person. It was at a situation where there was alcohol involved, and that person was relaxed enough. They had been drinking, and be, they were relaxed enough to be a little more honest than maybe they would have been. And, and it, it was a, a sad thing. And one of the things they said to me at the end, they said, 
they, they were speaking of them and, and some of the other players that were their friends, the men, and they said, you know, we don't even think you like, you know, we don't even think you like men. And I think many of you who know me and know my, my presence and, and my happy-go-lucky nature, right, I, I, I do affect, I, I think it's important that you're seen as joyful. And that's the person I am anyway. <laughs> but when I walk into a classroom or I walk into a festival, everybody else, oh, you're so, you know, you're so happy. And, and that really is me. It's not fake. But when somebody who you have played with side by side for, for 15 years looks at you and says that, you know, they and all the rest of the people in the section don't think that you like men, you know, imagine the, the cost that that takes. That says, you're not one of us. In fact, you're so much not one of us that we actually think you hate us. Why on earth would they think that, right? What causes those? What, what's going on there? What an interesting thing. And, you know, again, I'm in my 40s. I, I'm, I've got to have a little bit of a thick skin. But it's, it's kind of sad. And I wouldn't want you to have somebody say that to you. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was it was said out loud in a professional scenario. Like this wasn't in my living room where we were having a confidential talk. It was in a public setting in a professional. I was at a conference. And so these things are real. This, this was, you know, two years ago or something. It, it was very real. So I think that I, I did need to brush it off. And then one of the things I did, let's talk for a second about resources. How do you deal with that? One of the things I did was I immediately called a friend. I have a male friend who is very dear to me. And he went to Juilliard, he went to Curtis. He's a brass player of the highest renown. And I called him and I vented over the phone and I cried over the phone. And I I cried because I thought until then that I was part of their team. And it it made me see that I wasn't part of their team. And even now talking about it, it still does affect me that, that that was the moment I realized it had all been pretend that that I wasn't part of their team anymore. And and whether that team was a brass quintet or an orchestra or a a teaching collegiate field in the South, whatever your teams are, I realized then that they didn't have my back. And so I vented to this colleague, this wonderful man who talked me off the ledge and I'll never forget it. I was in the hotel room of the conference. (laughs) I was so angry and upset. And, And he said, remember who you are and don't, don't let that affect you. Remember who you are and think of the people on your team. And so I'm forever grateful to him because I think of that conversation often. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many layers to that. First of all, we feel like as at least from my standpoint and the research that I've done, a lot of female brass players feel like that they can't quite be themselves when they're playing in a section. I feel like I have to act more masculine, which I am not a very feminine woman in the in the first place but i feel like i have to even put that out more like i have to be more aggressive i have to be more masculine i have to put forward this uber confident sort of thing to overcompensate for the fact that i'm seen as less because yeah, almost like they could forget for a second you were a girl understand that yeah yeah because not only am i female and not only am i so ostracized and so different from the rest of them but i'm also a small human like i'm only five foot four so i feel like i have this like teeny body and i need to project this masculinity across to everyone i think that kind of goes subconsciously to the back of the head like oh well if she's acting this way and she's playing this male dominated instrument oh she she must not like men Right. There's this, this comes into feminism, doesn't it? This, the, mm-hmm. People think that feminism means you hate men. And there's a lot of people that don't use that word. I do like to promote that word. I want it to just mean that we don't want our mothers and aunts and daughters to get paid less. 
than the men that are doing the same job. Yeah, That's it's literally just about oh, equality. It has nothing yeah. to do with, I'm not trying to squish men. Like my boyfriend, we've been dating for almost five years. He is a male trumpet player. I'm not out here to stomp on him just because I am a woman. I don't think I'm better than anyone and that sort of thing. And so when some men see us kind of almost, they view it as we're almost invading their territory. Just in being there, they get that defensiveness because you are different from them. And even if they may think, oh, yeah, you know, we're part of a section, we're part of a team, subconsciously they may be thinking, oh, she, they want to take over. They want to take over our section. They want an all-female group and things like that. <laughs> and those do exist. However, we're not sitting there and trying to make the Cleveland Orchestra all-female. We're not no, we're trying to play, play our part. Yeah. yeah you know too, what like, I mean? In- in, and one of the things I try to remember is the men that I'm playing trumpet with in my orchestras are, you know, 50 years old. You know, many, many of them are in their middle of their careers. And, and let's remember that when our colleagues, because there's many fine colleagues, when they went to school, it really was that they sat in an all-male section at, mm-hmm. you know, Michigan or Juilliard, wherever they went to school. Even today, <laughs> I mean, I sat in an all-male section and I went to school in the 90s. So yeah. we, we can try to be understanding that when they came up in orchestra, military band, whatever it was, even in brass quintet, they probably really didn't sit with a lot of other women and it is uncomfortable for them because it's not what they're used to mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that you know it's okay or anything but one of the things that if, if you're listening and you're you're feeling some some hit with this you know if it, it's sometimes easy to, to feel defensive I would say to you it's okay that your experience was that every brass quintet you ever played in the tuba player was a man <laughs> That's okay. And, and I, I, I don't, it's, it's okay that maybe it's new and, and it could be uncomfortable and, and that's all okay. But maybe just try to be welcoming anyway. And, and it's okay if those people think that I hate men. I'm sorry about that. I am a straight woman and I, I do not hate men, but I don't actually think that they meant it as, as like I'm, but I think it's true that the experience most people have is this workplace is divided. It's divided by gender and race. And so when you mix those divisions, which is our goal, we want to mix, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's uncomfortable, but that's okay. Let's let's be uncomfortable. We have that conversation about race and, and class and gender, and, and let's allow it to be a little uncomfortable because it does often make us think about it differently. Yeah. And I was, I was talking with one of my friends in an earlier episode, and he's a musical theater major, and he is a black man. And he was talking about how when he first started school in his undergrad, some white people that were entering the school had never even seen a black person before. Yes. I am not a person that likes to equate gender and race because I feel like there are two separate things with two separate issues. And so I'm not trying to value them, you know, as the same or one over the other. Right. One is more um, systemic than the other. Absolutely. Exactly. So so what I'm saying is that's kind of kind of a similar scenario for some people in brass sections, especially they're walking in and they've never seen a woman sitting next to them before. And they're like, what do I do? And, and they almost treat us like we're not human. We're like this alien creature that's sitting next to us. And that's kind of like his experience as well. He had some some students who had never even seen a black person before. And he's like, well, now I'm representing all black people to this person. And so it's kind of the same thing with us. We're all of a sudden representing all women. We're representing all female brass players. And that's a lot of pressure. And so 
we may feel like, oh, we can't authentically be ourselves all of the time, or we have to overcompensate with our personality to fit in with the crew, to fit in with the boys club. And so it's, it's sad. We kind of almost have to be chameleons and kind of like morph with what else is going on because we're not of the majority in that situation. And this is where, and I know this, we've been talking, everybody's been wonderfully listening all this time. And, and as a way of, <laughs> as a way of thinking about, you know, we've had this conversation and I, I think that one of the solutions for this for us that are experiencing it is we we do need to, as I said, you need to accept that this career field when you're one of these demographics will be a little extra challenging. And I accepted that. I, I agree to it. I, I accept that. I accept that I'm going to have those those moments when doors are closed. It doesn't make it right, but I, I do need mentally to understand that that sometimes happens. And this brings us to something that, that I know that I talked a little bit about Susan Slaughter before. One of the purposes of the Women's Brass Conference is to provide a place where people can feel that what we what women don't feel in the rest of, of our career. And the Women's Brass Conference was founded in those pre-internet years when there wasn't an easy way to look up, you know, who's around me or, you know, yeah. find friends lists on in Instagram. So Susan Slaughter founded the organization and it's men and women. So that was the first thing. It wasn't an all girls thing. All girls things do have value, but and they're wonderful, but this wasn't that. IWBC is for everyone. And she had a newsletter twice a year. She had a, she published a, back in the day, because all the journals did this, the Tuba Journal did this too, uh, uh, like a, a roster. So you could see who it was, you know, in the mm-hmm. organization back before you could search memberships on the website. So the Women's Brass Conference has been where, when I'm frustrated, I can find people who understand me. And that's really what it is. It's men and women who understand that, like we said, feminism only means you want your daughter to get paid the same when she goes into that job. So something like the Women's Brass Conference, sometimes it's criticized, well, you know, we don't need things that are for women because that just divides people up. And I can I can see that. But what I say in return is everywhere we work should be mixed. The symphony, the brass quintet, the professors at the school, it should be a mixed by gender and race, but sometimes it's not. And that can be hard when you're living that example, when you're one of those few. And we need tools to help us. And the Women's Brass is one of those tools. It's a place where we can have conversations that sometimes feel uncomfortable. And we understand it's a safe space. And when we have conferences, everybody who presents and performs at the conference is doing so in some way related to diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so all of those presentations have an angle of this uncomfortableness. And it's a place where we can really try to brainstorm and, and think about ideas. There are conferences every two years. And and so for me, that networking has helped me feel okay about being alone in most of the rest of my places. Yeah. And I don't see it as being sort of divisive. Like some people may see, I see it as being a community and a resource. Yes. And I see it as making sure that more women don't drop out before they get into the professional field. It's it's promoting women and it's allowing girls that are students, whether they're in K-12 education or at the collegiate level, to come into a community where there are people that look like them and have the same experiences like them. Like you and I, we have kind of an age gap. Right. <laughs> a whole generation apart. Yes. Right. Yeah, we're in different places in our careers and everything, but we have these shared experiences. And so I see it as I can go on the website or whatever. I can go to these conferences and I meet people that are like me. And that just gives me this affirmation like, hey, I can do this. Even though I'm going back to my ensemble where I may be the only, I know there are people out there. And so I don't see it as like dividing men and women in those things. I just see it as 
we're promoting more women in the field we're providing this sense of community and so we're not discouraging women to quit or to drop out because they're experiencing this discouragement or the comments like we talked about earlier growing up like that could kill some girl's dream because they're all of a sudden seeing like oh it's not possible yeah yeah it's impossible right yeah and education is a big piece of that. So we do, we send brass quintets out into schools and, and we fund things and, and we, and we um, write grants and, and get music for the schools. One of my quarantine projects over you, you started a podcast. Good job. <laughs> Mine was I made a whole set of PDF handouts and I worked endlessly outside on my patio before it got too hot. And so you need to go to either my website or the Women's Brass. They're on both IWBC website. I created PDF handouts for each instrument. There's four because I put two euphonium on one. So trumpet, trombone, horn, and then two euphonium. They're each three-page PDF handouts and they're educational. They're free for you guys to download and share, photocopy them, pass them out. They're several pages each and they outline from the 1800s to the present some examples of beautiful role models of women on that instrument and some interesting tidbits of, of in, um, facts along the way. The, the Women's Brass, I charge, I'm in charge of the awards committee too, the Women's Brass gives awards for women who've gone before who are pioneers in our field and that's an educational resource and so I I, I have done that for many years and so that's one of the ways I, I like to just remind us like if I knew I wasn't really the first woman to be a player to do all these things which I'm not this we just don't know about them and because we don't know about them we, we need to be told so education is one of the main reasons I, I am still working so hard with the IWBC I, I want there to be people who understand that there are role models for us. Yeah, I will make sure that along with this episode at the bottom of the caption for the episode that I am tagging your website and IWBC's website in there. So if you want to access those resources, I mean, simple Google search, you'll find it too, but I'll just make it real easy on everybody. My dissertation was on women breast performers in the United States from 1880 to 1940. It's, I think, 90 pages and it's on my website too. And so that I did as large ensemble, small ensemble, and soloists. And so talking also about race and gender just in the U.S. and just in that time period. So that's on my website too. And along with various handouts for things that I present and when I give master classes in clinics that have to do with gender and diversity, there's one on the military bands in World War II also that has a resource list for you if you're interested in that. So that's that's my little way that I feel like I can be helpful and get the information out there because it's there. And it- it's doing a lot, especially when you were talking about those handouts and things like that, and just women historically who have done a lot to change the face of brass music, because I feel like a lot of them are being forgotten, or society and history hasn't really done them justice. For example, I was interviewing one of my friends, Christina, she's a tuba player. I was interviewing her one of the earlier episodes, and she was talking about how you had posted on Instagram about Connie Weldon. Right. And she, I'm sitting yeah, there. She, she needs to know about Connie Weldon, right? Exactly. She, amazing. Freak show, great tuba player. Like, I think yep. she's a total badass. Admire her so much, even though we're the same age. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Christina, you're my hero. It's fine. She's great. And she was talking on the episode about how she had never heard of Connie Weldon before. Yeah. And that post. So but why would she have, right? Now, in, exactly. One of the things that I, I told 
her when we were because she she contacted me because I do those mentor Mondays so mm-hmm. I have them all set out in advance and you know anybody who has a suggestion you can go ahead and send it to me because I'm the one that does those and you know the Tuba Journal uh, which is the ITA Journal now it it had Connie Weldon on the cover so the Tuba Journal did make space that's another way of our of our ways to diversify we make space to talk about these issues you're doing that now in this podcast the Tuba Journal made space and so kudos to them they had her on the cover and they had a whole interview with her and beautiful like a photo with of her with Harvey Phillips it's amazing so if you're a, a tuber or a euphonium player and you have an ITEA membership, you can go back because all those are, are online. So we, you know, we can congratulate ITA for doing a, a big feature on her, but I think it was probably 15 or 20 years ago. So I don't know how long ago it was. So of yeah. course, Christina and anybody you all's age, you, you wouldn't necessarily know. So that's my role when I know that I can put something out there that causes a fire in somebody like Christina to go and learn more. That's what, that what we're all here to do. Yeah, she saw that post and she was talking to me about it in the episode and she was like, she, cause she was giving me her whole rundown and all the things that she's done. And I'm sitting there like, she's literally like the Nadia Boulanger of Tuba. Was. Like people yes. were so threatened yes. by her because all of her students were winning jobs and things That's like right. that. And I'm sitting there like, how have we never heard of this woman? And so Christina's like writing a Wikipedia page for this lady right now because she went on Google and she couldn't find like any information about her. And it's crazy because that's one example. So how many others have we had? That's right. And no one's ever heard of. I'll say too that in Connie's case, she was a very private person. Mm-hmm. And the there is the Women's Brass has honored her as a pioneer. She's one of the ones. And so there's a whole photo and bio, tons, tons of information on the Women's Brass website about her. But that was with her permission, of course. But mm-hmm. she she wasn't, there, there wasn't ever ConnieWeldon.com or anything like that. She did yeah. not want to have a public face. And so in trying to respect that, you know, sometimes it's tricky. We, we, we want, and so part of the reason why the web is tricky is that some of these people, they either lived before, you know, their career was before this. She was teaching in the, in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And and so it's hard that they themselves, sometimes if, if they're no longer with us, they, you know, they, they just didn't have a way to have an online presence because that's something yeah. that we're doing now. Yeah. So, so there are resources. The Women's Breast website has all of the awardees, which is hundreds at this point, on our website, photos and bios. And so that's one resource. If, if you want to just take a gander through, somebody could just scroll through it and read about it. So, but yes, the, the way to bring this as an inspiration. So when, when she's, let's say she's taking an audition and she's feeling frustrated, she could tape that picture of Connie to her music stand and she could look at that and know that she could keep going. And that's real. That really, that inspiration is real. Yeah. And so you are the current president of the International Women's Brass Conference. So can you talk a little bit about what the organization is going to do moving forward, some of the projects you may be working on, or for next conference, which is happening next spring, hopefully. (laughs) As we're recording this, it's August 2020, and we're going to wait and see University of North Texas is our our site and, and whatever rules they have in place. You know, will follow. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, so we're not going to make the decision until later on. And what we're hoping to do is if we don't have it in 2021, we'll have it in 2022 with the exact same. Some of you might be aware that that's what the Midwest Clinic has done. The December Clinic this year has been postponed to the following year. And everybody that was awarded a presentation slot and, and a performance slot can just play then instead, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be there with the Athena Brass Band. And so I think we'll do a similar thing. So our call for proposals is open now if you're listening to this currently in 2020. So what we do is we host a conference every two years where we all come together there's competitions with thousands tens of thousands of dollars in 
cash prizes in all the different instruments and then they compete against each other in a final round. There's also a like instrument ensemble competition. So a trumpet choir, trombone choir, two euphonium quartet counts in that like instrument. And so it's, it's what it was, was something that would be for groups aside from brass quintet. That was the mm-hmm. intent with the like instruments. So trumpets, horn ensemble, trombone choir and tube euphonium. And so there's that ensemble with a cash prize and they get a performance slot. And then there's lectures. And so we have those events every two years. And then in between the Monarch Brass, which is an ensemble that Susan put together as an example of an all-female ensemble, they do gigs and touring. So they sometimes play like at ITG or at Midwest, or they sometimes play as a separate concert. They're available to book as a concert. We often send brass quintet runouts from Monarch Brass into schools. Like we said, we've gotten um, grants to work in inner city schools and, and have school programs through for education and provide role models, especially for women of color and in, in the schools also. And one of the things that we do is we write work on grant writing and get grants for these proposals and also recordings. So we've gotten grants before for recordings of Monarch Brass and there's a commissioning arm that works on women, music by women and people of color. And so there's a commissioning arm for recording those works too. That's another part of our website. You can see all the music that we've commissioned and then link to the websites of these composers. And Tanya Leon has written a piece and amazing composers that you know those names. Libby Larson, that's a, the commissioning arm is a big part of it too. And so when we're not having a conference, we're doing all those other initiatives and working and speaking. Many of our board members speak and work and, and give clinics and donate their time. There's a mentoring program, too, where you can apply and be paired with a WBC member who is donating their time and get you know resume help and interview help, like mock interviewing and mini lessons, things like that for job and career mentoring. And we also have a newsletter twice a year that features anybody can submit to it. So send that to me. If you've written about something, interview somebody older, right? Somebody who you admire, role models. And it's not just men and women can can submit things. And it's health and wellness in the newsletter. And I I always love reading like the the interviews, especially the advice and and like this thing when, when you learn the background of people. Like, I think it would surprise many people because I'm going to post it on Twitter when we're done with this, that, that we spoke in such a way that made me cry. That, I think, matters that somebody mm-hmm. I, I am a pretty tough lady, but the fact that this this conversation matters so much. The newsletter does that to it. It's a way for us to honor and showcase the work. When somebody releases a new CD, we put it in the newsletter. So I'm a big fan of the newsletter, Jen Murata in California. She she runs the, she's the newsletter editor. And so yes, so that that is a fabulous resource. And all of the newsletters for the entire time back from 1993 to the present are all online as PDFs for the members. So that's a resource that you can look back on and see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's an excellent organization. I feel like a lot of people just know it for the conferences that happen every right. year. And that's why I wanted you to delve in on all the other things that you do, because I think it's amazing, especially the career mentorship stuff, Yes. because I feel like that's so important. And that, again, is going to be that piece that further promotes more women in the professional field. And I think that's really great. As we talked about, some of us like me were very lucky. I had amazing male teachers because again we're not you know we're not bashing anybody I had amazing male teachers and I survived without this mentorship in place (laughs) but it it, you know it's not true that everybody has a good experience and those people I am obligated to take under my wing I I think that that I am supposed to give back and so when somebody calls me we had a call last week and they, they messaged me on Instagram and said hey you know could we zoom for for 30 minutes I I'd love to get some advice. I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I feel a little stuck. And and, and so I had a, a Zoom call with that person and we made a list. I'm very list oriented, <laughs> but definitely type A. So there was a five-year plan involved in this discussion. <laughs> so 
but I, I think that we older people, we do want to give back. And so that's what IWBC is. It's older and younger people, but it's people who feel that, that we can help and it's a way to help. Yeah, that's excellent. Joanna, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and sharing your experiences and all these wonderful resources. I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thank It's been you. such a pleasure, Cassidy. I was looking forward to this. We're recording this on a Monday morning and I had I my coffee and I'm all set to go. And it's so nice to chat and feel like we're helping the conversation. And I've seen your Cassidy's got this on all of the social medias. Um, we're following each other on Twitter and Instagram and she's on Facebook. And so go give that a follow and look and listen and send her suggestions for things that you'd like to see her talk about. We'd yes. really love to include all voices in this conversation. So thank Absolutely. you so much for having me today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.